pray. Lord, you are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? What shall we dread? The thing that we should have dreaded as unbelievers, death and hell, they don't fear, cause us fear anymore. Because you have transferred us, rescued us, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now we, we stand before you justified and sanctified and being sanctified. All of it to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory. And it fills us with delight. It gives our souls strength and joy, and love for one another, and love for you, I ask you, Father, to multiply all of that until you come and find us faithful. May you find us faithful. We thank you now for this hour and ask you to bless it in ways that we don't know how to ask for, but your Spirit does. Protect us from error and fill us with your truth. Lord, these are, these are difficult concepts. They're so important for us. They're so rich. They're such a treasure for us. So give us ears to hear. Give us minds that are clear as we think about these things. And change us, Lord. Change us, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Sanctification always follows Justification. The word always here is key. Sanctification always, always follows justification because in Christ you have died to sin and have been raised to a new kind of life. I confess this morning that we are going to cover the same verses we covered last week, and we may do that again next week. I feel like, as I so often do, like I, I wake up and realize in my study, I, I kind of wake up and realize that I have fallen into Aladdin's cave, and everywhere I look, there's treasure. And it's too much. It's, it's impossible for me to condense it into a, a 45, they give me 45 minutes, right? I get 45 minutes, which means I always, pastorally speaking, get 50 or 55 minutes. <laughs> and still it's not enough. This morning we pick back up where we left off at the beginning of Romans in chapter 6. The opening verses of this amazing chapter reminded us of a biblical teaching that many modern evangelicals neglect and some are offended by. Specifically, I'm speaking of the doctrine, the New Testament doctrine that teaches that when a man receives a new relationship with Christ, that is salvation, when he receives a new relationship with Christ, he also receives a new relationship with sin. And if there is no new relationship with sin, then in all likelihood there's no new relationship with Christ after all. This is what sanctification is all about. The title of the message last week was simply Your New Relationship with Sin, and, and that's still the theme. In that message, we were reminded that in Paul's gospel, justification and sanctification are a package deal. You can't get one without the other. They always come together. They don't come to the believer separately or at different times or different seasons in your life. To the contrary, the moment a sinner is save, savingly believes in Jesus, the grace of God rolls in like an overwhelming flood 
and washes away all your guilt and sin. And then, as if that weren't enough, it changes. It changes that new believer at the level of the heart by releasing him from slavery to sin. It releases us from slavery to sin. Beloved, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this congregation. I'm praying for myself and all who may be listening today and last week and next week. And the reason I feel especially moved to pray for you and for us is because as one of your pastors and as a biblical counselor and and as a fellow Christian, I am convinced that many who are hearing my voice right now have for years, perhaps decades, believed that they are irrevocably enslaved to the sin that binds them. But oh, my friend, I'm here to tell you that that Paul has sent me to deliver to you good news this day, namely that in Christ you have already been delivered not only from guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. So when Paul proclaims the gospel of Jesus, his preaching is about a Savior who breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. And I want you to be free. I want you to be free. Paul wants you to be free. And you can be free, and you are free. You just don't know it yet. And that's what this passage is about. These truths are some of the deepest, most powerful, most relevant teachings in the Bible for Jesus' followers like you and me. And because Paul believes these things, he preaches them, he writes them, he sends his messengers to proclaim them. In short, he wants you to know them. I know these are difficult passages. I know these are difficult concepts. But you need to discipline yourself because none of these are throwaway words. They are some of the most significant words in the New Testament. But you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to slap yourself. Don't do that out loud during the service. But try to keep yourself focused, and and I will try to help you. Paul wants you to know these things. And that probably accounts for the fact that in this passage, he emphasizes the word know three times. And then a fourth time before the end of this chapter He wants you to know. He wants you to know. These are theological truths that he wants you to know. If you don't know these theological truths, you won't act on them. But before we dig into the passage, let's take a moment to read it. So please open your Bible and stand with me and turn to chapter 6 in honor of God's word. And we will read... Verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and you can be seated. The question we should be asking at this point in this series of messages is, what did Jesus do to free me from the power of sin and ensure my my sanctification? So let's put those two things together again. Here's the question. What did Jesus do to free me from the power of sin and ensure my sanctification? Because, again, as I said at the beginning, the two come together. We get both at salvation. So what did he do? Well, you know the answer to this. He died. He rose again from the dead. And he ascended to the Father. That is, new life after resurrection. These three actions of Jesus kind of provide the fundamental structure of the text. But, but I think Paul would insist, if he were here, that I refer to them as benefits that believers receive. And this will serve as the outline for this message. Number one, in Christ, I have died. Number two, in Christ, I was raised. And number three, in Christ, I am free. I am free. Free, that is, from the tyranny of sin. That is what sanctification is all about. Now, before we start in on these three points, I want you to know that these three benefits come to us from one glorious reality. And that glorious reality is our union with Christ. Now, some of you right now are going, oh, not not that again. You've, You've already talked about that. And the rest of you who are more godly are saying, yes, he's going to talk about union with Christ again. <laughs> Let all the elect clap and with joy. Remember this. Usually when Paul speaks of our union with Christ, he uses the term en Christo. I mean, it just sounds like what it is, in Christ. In Christ. This is such an important doctrine. It's such an important term in Paul's theology that he uses in Christo 73 times in his letters. And that's only one way that he talks about our being in Christ or in union with Christ. But just this one phrase, in Christ, in Christ. So when we sing, In Christ alone. There are no throwaway words there. In Christ. It's all about union with Christ. And and let me just tell you, you will not be able to understand this chapter unless you have some understanding of your union with Christ. As an interesting side note, historically, Paul makes a brief statement at the end of Uh, The book of Romans, he gives greetings to, I forget how many people, by name. He's never been to Rome. He's never seen the church or the people who were there. He knows some of these people from other places. But uh, at the end of of his greetings, this is uh, chapter 16, verse 7, we read this. Paul's writing, and he says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. And, listen carefully, they were in Christ before me. You know what that means? They came to know Christ. They came to know the Lord. They were born again before Paul. But the interesting thing is, that's how they referred to believers. They're in Christ. And Christo. 
Well, it just gives us a little insight into how the early Christians referred to one another or thought about each other. They are in Christ. And as I've said many times before, the doctrine of union with Christ is perhaps the sweetest and most important doctrine in the New Testament. In fact, Scottish pastor and theologian John Murray said this, union with Christ is the central doctrine of salvation. That might be a little hyperbole, but if it is, it's not by much. Union with Christ is the central doctrine of salvation. Why would he say such a thing? Well, he says this because everything we receive from God comes to us in Christ. And everything that belongs to Christ now also belongs to you. It's like you're married. Ephesians 5, you are married to Christ. And so everything that, all of your debts go to him and all of his wealth comes to you. All his sin, all your sin goes to him. All his righteousness comes to you. Beloved, truths like this should help us when we pray. We should learn from these truths, not just what the doctrines teach so we can say, hey, I understand that. I didn't go to seminary, but I'm pretty smart. I've understood this. I, I get this. I know what in Christ means, but it should, it should crop up in conversation. It should crop up when we pray, when, when you're having a difficult time. You can say something like, oh, Father, today has really been a hard day, but I'm so grateful because of your superabounding grace, I am in Christ. And so all of your promises to me are yes and amen. There is nothing to fear this day, nothing to be concerned about here, because I am in you. The doctrine of union with Christ is critical for understanding this text. Without it, we're, we'll be left walking out of here, scratching our heads and saying things like, Pastor Dan's been in his books too long. Too much education. This is the glorious reality. This is the glorious reality from which the three benefits of Christ flow to all who believe. And so here we go. The first point of our message, number one, in Christ you have died. In Christ you have died. Now you remember from last time that Certain people had a problem with the gospel of justification by faith alone. I'll let Stephen Yule set the stage here. He writes, Paul, as if he's speaking to him, I want a word with you. Paul stops dead in his tracks. I understand your teaching on justification, but I'm very, very concerned. This notion that our works don't contribute to our justification will result in laxity it will make people think that they can live however they want. They can sin however they please. How does Paul answer? He answers with chapter 6, verses 1 through 23, which I hope to finish before the end of the year. <laughs> so we have his answer. And, and Paul's immediate answer is, as someone down here mentioned a second ago, what shall we say that, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Meganoita, not in a thousand years. Forget about it. A little jersey came out of me there. How can we who died to sin live in it? Now, Paul was struck here with the horror at the possibility that a Christian might be found giving himself over to a life of godlessness and sin in the name of grace. And Paul understood that the grace that justifies is the same grace that sanctifies. And it happens at the same time. Now, I... I admit that there are two kinds of sanctification. One is a positional sanctification that happens at the moment you believe. But there is also a progressive sanctification that takes the rest of your life and you participate in 
But Paul's primary focus here is on the first. If your status now is you are a saint, and you didn't do anything to get that status, you simply received it by the empty hand of faith, God gave it to you as, as a grace. And Paul understood that the grace that justifies also sanctifies. And in the New Testament, grace is not a sentimental disposition or a warm, positive feeling. No. Grace, listen carefully, grace is the power of God. It is the power of God moving on the hearts of sinners to transform sinners into saints and to transform rebels into joyful servants of Christ. And how does he do that? He causes us to die, to sin. Note what Paul says. How can we who died to sin live in it? Answer, it is impossible. It's not possible. Don't you understand? Dead men don't sin. Now, it's critical here that we understand what Paul means by sin. When he says, we died to sin. Now, this is, this is where you're going to have to pay attention. Because you're going to get the wrong impression if you don't listen carefully. What does he mean when he says, we died to sin? Paul's not speaking about specific sins that you might commit. He is thinking of sin in terms of a realm, a government, a kingdom. Before we were born again, we all lived in the, in a, in the realm, the kingdom of sin. And Paul makes this point clear again and again and again in the New Testament. And he makes it, for example, to the church of Colossae when he declares this in, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, which is why I asked Randy to read from Colossians 1 this morning. And here's what it says, verses 13 and 14, Colossians 1. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Notice the two phrases there, domain and kingdom. You were in the kingdom or the, the domain of sin, but now you are in the kingdom of Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here in Romans, back in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says that sin reigned in death, but grace reigned in righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's arguing that there are two realms or kingdoms, the kingdom of sin and death, whose representative head is Adam. Remember, we learned about that a few weeks ago. And the kingdom of grace, on the other hand, whose representative head is none other than Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We don't live in the kingdom of sin anymore. We live in the kingdom of Christ. You see... There was a time when every one of us were citizens of the kingdom of sin and death. We learned a couple of weeks ago, wherever there's death, there's sin, because the wages of sin is death. Explaining this to the church of Ephesus, again, here he's writing the same thing to a different church. And he says in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, that this kingdom of sin, this is how he describes it. It is a kingdom in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. So nobody's exempt from this. Nobody jumps out of the womb into the kingdom of Christ. We are all born in the kingdom 
of sin and death. Paul's writing this letter not to unbelievers, per se, but rather to people who have been rescued from the domain of, king, of the kingdom of sin and death. We no longer, here's, here's the punchline, because we are no longer in the realm, the kingdom of sin and death, we no longer have to obey the laws of that kingdom. Nobody from that kingdom can push us around. At least they can't conquer us. They can harass us. I was thinking about this this week and, and just thinking about uh, the war in Ukraine, those dear people. Back in um, the early 80s, when the Berlin Wall came down and the Iron Curtain came down with it, and all, the, um, all of the little states that were part of what was then the Soviet Union or the Commonwealth, um, they all broke into little countries. Ukraine was one of them. They reclaimed themselves and made themselves into a country, right? And, and everyone who was a part of that country, everyone who was a citizen of that, of that country gets all the features and benefits of being a citizen. And you're not a citizen of Russia anymore. You don't belong to Russia. You don't have to obey Russia. They may come and attack you. They may bomb you. But you will never be a citizen of Russia anymore. It's the best picture I can come up with, feeble as it may be. We are no longer hopeless vassals and slaves to Pharaoh or his lord, the devil. And the whole purpose and goal of Paul's train of thought here is this, Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, make you obey its passions. Now, I don't want to come to that too soon. That's all I'm going to say about that because it's kind of for next week. Just pretend we haven't opened that gift yet. In other words, what he's saying is, you are no longer a citizen of that realm. You're no longer part of that kingdom of sin. Legally speaking, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you were declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven, and you died to the realm of sin and became a legal citizen of heaven in which you will live forever with the Lord to the praise of his glorious grace. Shall we continue to live in sin that grace may abound? Should we go back to living in the kingdom of sin again? Are you kidding? Why would we do that? Shall we continue living a lifestyle dominated by sin? Meganoita. Not in a million years. How can we who died to sin, the realm of sin, how can we still live in it? How can we still live in it? Now, I'm not saying you can't visit it. That's foolish. But you can visit it, I suppose, and, and come back. I, I just want to... Uh, in, in, at least in the experiential sense, whenever you sin, it's as if you've taken vacation momentarily in the kingdom of darkness. How can we continue to live in the realm of sin? And the answer is, it's impossible. You can't. You can't. When a sinner receives a new relationship with Jesus, he also receives a new relationship with sin. And you see, the first thing that justifying grace does is it unites, it unites the believer with Christ. And Paul wasn't worried that, that the true believer would return to a lifestyle that mingles carnality with Christ. To be one with Christ means that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God there is no way the Holy Spirit is going to allow a child of God, a believer, to continue in sin or to keep on practicing a sinful lifestyle, as the Apostle John put it. He will not allow you to practice sin. 
without serious conviction and discipline to draw you back to fellowship with Jesus. And the author of Hebrews warns that if you don't experience the Lord's discipline, you are none of his. If you can sin without guilt, you are none of his. If you can sin and not incur the discipline of the Lord, you're none of his. Remember when David sinned, one of the key phrases he used was, God's hand was heavy upon me. It's a sign of sonship. It's a sign that you are living in the right kingdom. And Paul says, how can we, and, and, and kind of the, the tone that is brought out here is this, how can we, we of all people, we who have died to sin, how can we still live in it? Paul answers the question in, verses, in verse 10. We're writing about Jesus. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The pronoun he here in verse 10 refers to Christ. So how did Christ die to sin? Well, he died to sin by bearing the penalty of sin on the cross. It wasn't a moral death, it was a legal death. He died in our place. Because the believer is in Jesus, Jesus is counted, the, the, the believer is counted as one with Christ. Christ's death is counted as your death because everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. So Christ's death is your death. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, Jesus died to fulfill the legal requirements of death for sin. And since the penalty for sin is paid, how could anyone return to a life of bondage all over again? The Spirit of God will not allow it. It is not possible. Now notice the next phrase here, chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And we should know here that Paul expected people, here's that word again, he expected people to know these things. He expected the brethren at Rome to know these things. He expected the brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus to know these things. I mean, for us, they may sound like, wow, this is new. I hadn't really thought through these things before. I'd never really grasped them. He expected they would know them. They would understand what he is teaching. Paul had never been to Rome. So how did they come to be taught these deep, rich doctrines? And the most logical answer I came across this week and in multiple volumes is they must have learned it as new believers came for baptism and were taught what is behind the act of baptism. Think about it. Everywhere the gospel bore fruit, people repented and believed and, and joined local churches. And as those churches sought to fulfill Jesus' commission to teach and to baptize, the elders made sure that these new converts understood the, the substance that was behind the symbol of baptism. Otherwise, they would be in danger of, of thinking somehow that the act of baptism, like circumcision, would be somehow meritorious and bring about salvation. In order to keep that from happening, they had to have explained these doctrines. So Paul expected them to know them. And the Lord expects us to know them. He expects you to know them. Perhaps you're here today and you've never heard these truths. Let me assure you that it's all true. It's all true. The substance behind baptism is this. 
that Jesus was immersed into death in the grave for sins that were not his own. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath on himself for you, on your behalf, so that you could be delivered and rescued from the righteous wrath of God that you deserve. Let me assure you that all of that is true. And in your heart of hearts, you know that you do your best, perhaps subtly as possible, to keep God at arm's length from you, to keep Jesus and his people at arm's length from you. You don't want him messing around with your life and exposing your sin, but oh, my friend, the only reason he exposes your sin is so that he can forgive it and wash it away and rescue you from its tyranny. This very moment, the Holy Spirit is calling you to surrender yourself to his mercy and his love. He is right now speaking very clearly to you, urging you, drawing you. And he will not stop until he has you fully. Right now, as you sit here in the middle of this service, I plead with you to ask him to reveal the truth to your soul. He is the only Savior. He is your only hope. And he will be your Savior and your hope forever if you will have him. We're back now to our text in verse 3. Paul says, you know, don't you? That's the implication. You know, don't you, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, I'll stop there for a minute. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? Well, Paul tells us in a letter that he probably wrote years before he wrote his letter to the Romans. This one is the epistle to the, to the Galatians. And I suspect most of the believers were familiar with that letter and they would eventually be familiar with the, the letter that had just been written to Rome. But in Galatians 3.27, Paul writes to the church of Galatia and he says this, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. To put on Christ is simply a different way of saying that you are in Christ. There it is again. You are in Christ. I was trying to think of what this would be like. I remember last time I went to Kalispell in the winter, Kalispell, Montana, where a couple of our kids live. A whole slew of grandkids live, and it's so cold. And I got thinking about that, that feeling. Have you ever been out in bitter, bitter cold, and, and you don't have a coat on? And you're standing there thinking you're going to turn into a popsicle and die. <laughs> and your dad comes up behind you, and he wraps you with this long, thick winter coat with a hood, and you pull the string, and you can't see anything but your nose sticking out, and you're, you're absolutely covered. You disappear. That's what it's like to put on Christ. It's, it's just a picture of what it means to be in Christ. This is what he's talking about when he says that we are baptized into Christ. To put on Christ is simply a different way to say we're in Christ. And this is what it's like. This is what it's like. He is wrapped around you and you disappear. His robes of right righteousness are wrapped around you and all of your sin is gone. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin if you belong to Christ. He sees your coat. He sees what you're wrapped in. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what happened the very moment you first believed in Jesus. In God's eyes, you became one with Christ. Therefore, 
Whatever belongs to him, here we go again. Whatever belongs to him belongs to you. Even his death belongs to you. You were buried with him. You were baptized in him. You were immersed in him. What did Jesus do to free me from the power of sin and ensure my sanctification? He died. And in Christ, we died with him. And the emphasis that, that points to um, what Paul is saying here, that Paul's uh, trying to pound into our heads, is we were buried, therefore, with him. We died with him. We are no longer in the realm of sin anymore and death. We are now in the realm of Christ. Matthew Henry wrote this. I want you to think. Let me, let me just give you opposites here to, to gauge. He's not saying that sin died. Right? He's saying you died. Matthew Henry um, kind of offers the following insights with these words saying, as death of the oppressor is a release, so much more is the death of the oppressed. Death brings a writ of ease to the weary. Thus we must be dead to sin. We must observe it, regard it, fulfill its will no more. No more than he that is dead that is. In Christ, we have died to sin. We have died. Sin no longer has claim to us. We don't have to obey it anymore. So, I've got a few minutes left. Let's, let's chip away at the second thing here. Jesus not only died, but he also rose again from the grave. And that means in Christ, what? You raised. You were raised. In the next verse we read, Romans 6, 4 through 5. Follow along with me. Romans 6, 4 through 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Just as we have learned that Christ's death to sin was our death to sin. So now we learn that Christ's resurrection to new life is our resurrection to new life. What is Paul talking about? Beloved, listen carefully. He's talking about change. He's talking about you being changed. He's talking about real change as it relates to the believer's relationship with sin. This is moral change. Salvation is like dying and rising again to a whole new life. We die to sin. We come alive to God in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friend, salvation brings serious, serious, blessedly glorious change. In 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4, we read this. For the time that passed that is past, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness and idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you for it. Why are you different? Peter is saying, you're different now. You're different now. Things have changed with you. Why are you like that? And you're going to say, believe it or not, I died. 
died to that. And when he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, I think what he means by that is, you used to do that. You used to be that. You used to live in the kingdom, in the domain, dominion, domain of sin and death and hell. Not anymore. Not anymore. And the people around you can see it. And they may mock you for not participating with them. That's what Peter's saying. The thing that makes you stand out is your sanctification. You've died to sin. You've become alive to Christ. His blood flows through your veins. His heart has become your heart. It's not that you don't commit any sin anymore. Listen carefully. It's not that you don't commit sin anymore. It's that you hate the sin that you commit. And you want to dump it. You want to get rid of it. You run to the Father. And you beg for fatherly forgiveness. Not that you have to beg. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the difference between one who is a citizen of heaven and the one who is a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. And so if, if you were living this kind of life, let me just read the list again. Living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawlessness, idolatry, if that's your lifestyle when you're not in church, then you're probably not one with Christ. You see, you see the differentiation here? I'm not saying that if you go home and sin, that's it, you're out. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if you habitually live a life of sin, like sinners live, then you are a citizen of that kingdom. But in Christ, you've died to that. You've died to that realm. You are now in the realm of the Spirit, the realm of Christ. And again, we see this promise again and again in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know this verse, right? How many of you could quote it? I mean, modesty might call you to keep your hand down. But I want you to see, I want to see how many of you know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I see that hand, you can come forward. I see another hand. <laughs> Don't. Here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will with the temptation, will with the temptation give you everything you need to endure it. Here's another one. And by the way, that text, that text says this. Let me, let me interpret it for you a little bit. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able or beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And what that text is saying is this, believer who is living in the kingdom of Christ, this is what he's saying. When you sin, you do something that you didn't have to do. When you sin, Christian, you do something you don't have to do. You don't live under that tyrant anymore. You have died to the old kingdom, the old realm. Isn't this wonderful? And by the way, by the way, I'm going to make a big deal out of this next week. All of this that we've, we've talked two weeks here, right? And with the exception of that little package that I told you to set aside for a minute, there has not been one imperative yet. 
In fact, one could argue that there's not really been an imperative in the book of Romans yet. He's saving it for next week. You know what he's been doing? He's been telling you what you have. This is what you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. You're a member of the, of the city of God. You belong to the kingdom of Christ. You are a citizen by blood and by birth. Because of your representative head, who is Christ. Beloved, this is so precious and so powerful. So mind-boggling. It's worthy of your meditation. It's worthy of your thinking deeply about these things and then acting on them. You say, what should I do? Well, you can read uh, the next phrase or two and it will tell you. Or you can come back next week because we're out of time. Let me just say this. In Christ we died. In Christ we have been raised. Next week, in Christ, we are free. In his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady urged Christians to sing this to God. This is just one phrase from his song, Rock of Ages. It, it, it kind of strikes you as a prayer. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Is that your heartbeat? Is that what you want for your soul? We will not be perfect this side of heaven, not for a single moment but we can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. We can live in the Spirit as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I feel compelled to say these truths are too wonderful for me. We certainly don't hold them in as high esteem as they deserve nor do we obey them the way we should and perhaps would if we knew the fullness and the gravity of it. I pray, Father, for anyone here today who has not yet been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, trans transferred into the joy of the kingdom of God, may it be today, O oh Lord. Grant them the grace to cry out to God. O oh Lord, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Would you receive me? Would you rescue me from that the dominion in which I've lived all my life? Would you make me your servant, your follower, your worshiper? Would you change me forever? Would you have me, Lord? I would have you. Pray, Father, that you would cause some to be born again right now. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.